Would you bow your hearts again with me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful for what your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has accomplished. That the sacrifice for our sin, the debt of our sin, is paid in full. One time did it. Lord, may we behold the majesty of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you are for us. that you would do this, that our sins, our iniquities could be forgiven. As the, the psalm we prayed earlier talked about, and later in that psalm it says that our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, I pray that we would, in time, live in that freedom and live in that victory more than we are now. And it's in Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen. The Apostle John tells us that at the end of the crucifixion of Christ, at the end of that day, what we now call Good Friday, John, in, John 19 says that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. First of all, it's amazing that Jesus could have any clarity of thought in this moment. I mean, I stub my toe and I lose all train of thought, like my afternoon shot, like I just, it takes me a while to recover, okay? I have very sensitive toes. <laughs> um, but Jesus, after being through all he had been through, through the sleepless night in an unjust trial that never should have been, in the, the abandonment before that, his friends abandoning him, before that, just incredibly stressful prayer, crying out to God for there to be any other way to save all humanity. And then after the sleepless night, he's beaten, brutally beaten. The crown of thorns shoved into his head, dehydrated. He hasn't had three square meals Exhausted, malnourished, malnourished, dehydrated, in an excruciating pain, now nailed to a cross, sitting through the heat of the day with open wounds. And he has the clarity and presence of mind to say, I think I did it all. And then to fulfill one more passage about himself. And then after doing that, says, it is finished. What a Savior. 
What a glorious Savior we have. But we, and, and even as we just sang it, there, there's this question that, that, that needs to arise, at, at least for, for me it has to arise. What did he mean? When Jesus says, it is finished, what was he talking about? Was he talking about just the, the work on the cross itself? Was he talking about the day's work? Was he talking about his earthly ministry and his time on earth the last 30 years? Like, all right, I'm about to go home. I have a really cushy throne waiting for me. It's going to be much more comfortable than this cross. Or was it something even much longer than that? Over the next several weeks, we're going to seek to answer that question. What did Jesus mean when he said it is finished? And we're going to do this by walking through select passages out of the book of Hebrews as we come up to, to Easter, trying to figure out what does it mean that Jesus said it is finished? What, it, what did he mean by that and what does it mean for us? So this is what we're going to be doing from now till Easter morning. And sometimes, I don't know about you, there, there's a lot of ways to walk up to Easter. I remember being a kid, uh, and this is going to date me a little bit, but I don't think a lot of you are going to know what I'm talking about. We did what's called the 50-day adventure. Do you guys remember the 50-day adventure? Any of you? Like three of you remember 50-day adventure. It was, um, it was like... Uh, a Lent Bible study for evangelicals, uh, but we didn't have to give anything up. We just, we just did it. Uh, so our church did that for a few years, where, and it was my, my sister and I would have like the kids' version, these little workbooks, and then my parents would have the adult version, and once a week we'd talk about it. And, uh, but other people, when you think of the walk to Easter, Lent is exactly what comes to mind. And as someone who grew up in a in a church that didn't celebrate Lent, it was really confusing for me because it, it, for me, like as I observe it, it's everything from deeply meaningful to a way to give up chocolate for a couple months to what some do as some sort of mortification of the flesh that seems to just pour on guilt more than anything else. And as, there's a lot of traditions that that practice Lent, and I don't want to disparage it at all, when it's done correctly, I, I think it, it draws a person to their own weakness, to their need for a Savior, and points correctly to Christ who took on flesh and died for us and gave up heaven and gave up glory to become a man. I have overseen more and more, and this is because just people tend to do things wrong, right? Like we... We screw up everything. I've seen so many times where an expression or a focus is, is, is meant to produce this guilt. And I don't know about you guys, I just don't need any help with that in my own life. I don't need any help telling me how wrong I am. And how screwed up I am and how unworthy I am. I have enough struggle feeling not good enough to go to the Lord. And I wonder if you can relate to that. Do you 
find yourself this morning being hyper aware of your own guilt and shame? Do you, do you find yourself this morning thinking, what am I doing here? I just feel like such a fraud. If the people around me knew what I did this week, they, they wouldn't be around me right now. I'd, I'd be sitting in a row by myself. And maybe because of a wrestling with guilt, you wish you were sitting in a row by yourself. Are you more motivated to wallow in your guilt right now than you are to read the Bible or pray or much less listen to some guy who does it for you in the front of the room? I don't read the Bible for you. Don't, don't hear that wrong. If you're here this morning and you can really relate to that, I want you to hear from the Word of the Lord. I'm, we're in Hebrews 4 is where we're starting this morning. And I'm going to be starting in verse 14. And I'm, I'm going to start reading while you're getting there, so just, just catch up when you get there. Listen to the Word of the Lord for you who just feel completely shot in your guilt and shame. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. He's talking about us there since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He said also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I want you to know this morning, you, can confidently come to your sympathetic priest. Confidently come 
to your sympathetic priest. Jesus is enough Savior for you. You know, he starts here in verse 14 with since then. And between that transition and the fact that we're starting a, he a Hebrew series of sorts in chapter 4, you, being the good Bible readers you are, are wondering, what in the world does he mean by since then? What all has he covered that we've missed? Hebrews gives us through about the first three quarters of the, the epistle a gloriously supreme view of Jesus. The epistle does this by showing the majesty of the person of Christ as well as how much Jesus has done for us and the reality and, and, and what he did for us when he offered himself on the cross. He does this through vivid Old Testament detail, passage after passage that he's stringing together like a fine pearl necklace to show us who Jesus is. And Hebrews opens up with this urging of the author to, for, the, for his readers to know the glory of Jesus. That he says that it's through Jesus that God created the world. It's through Jesus that, that God has spoken to us. That he is, higher, uh, he is higher than the angels. He is, and, and as higher than the angels, he's higher than them as the only son of God. As he's higher than them as the one who's worshipped by angels, who's the one who's in charge of angels. He rules from an eternal throne. He's righteous and unchanging. He's victorious with his enemies made to be a footstool. He came as the God-man incarnated in flesh. He tasted death for all of us. He defeated death and the devil. He calls us brothers. He helps sinners. And he's greater than Moses in the law. And that's really just the first three chapters. He is the only one who was able to finish it. Since then, we have such a phenomenally great high priest. Let us hold fast to this confession that Jesus is the Son of God who came as a man and died on the cross for our sins. Let us hold fast to this, knowing all of who Jesus is. He is all the Savior you could ever hope for. Let us hold on to this confession. Let nothing peel our grip from it. Jesus, this glorious Jesus, just described in the opening chapters of Hebrews, he then goes on to say something truly astonishing. That we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. That we have a Savior that knows our struggle. That Jesus isn't this high priest sitting in a lofty place with a much easier life than any of us could ever imagine looking at us saying, why don't you just get your act together? Instead, he's a Jesus who came down, he took on flesh, he knows the full weight of temptation. You think about this. Every time Jesus was tempted, he did not relent. You know how sometimes when you're tempted, like the longer you try and resist, the harder it gets? But we, like, get, we give in to temptation 
uh, I'm just going to make up a number off offhand. Like in an average of like one minute and 34.5 seconds, we give in to temptation. I made that up. Don't look it up. But Jesus lasts that out every time. He knows the full weight of temptation more than I ever will. And he has a, this 100% success record. And, and knowing the full weight of temptation, something we can't relate to, having this 100% success record, something we can't relate to, he sits on his throne and he looks at us and goes, oh, you idiots. No. He looks at us and he has sympathy for our weakness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how often, when we're dealing with someone who's struggling with something we don't struggle with, we just start to lose patience. Like, ah, get your act together. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Quit screwing around, and you won't get yourself in these situations. And Jesus looks at us with sympathy. In chapter 2, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That Jesus is able to help you in your temptation. He is a great high priest who is sympathetic, who is present, who is helpful, who is kind. And so with that great reality, the, the, the author then says, well, then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in times of need. There is a big difference between confidently going to the throne of grace and arrogantly strutting into God's presence. There's a big difference between someone who comes in and goes, all right, God, hey, I'm here again. I just, thanks for giving me a key. I just welcome myself into your throne room. Uh, I know you're glad to see me because, I mean, who wouldn't be? And uh, yeah, just help me to do better. There's a big difference between that and knowing that there's this throne that I have, I have no right being in the throne room of the king. I have no right being there, but I am in such desperate help. I'm in desperate need. I'm going to go in there, and I know that when I go in there and I ask for help, he's going to give it to me. It's not that we enter in because of grace. We have the right to enter in and talk however we want. It's that we can go, and we, in our great need, in the presence of the throne, we're not driven out as an unworthy subject, but we are given grace and mercy because of our high priest. Confidently come to your sympathetic priest. Don't wallow, don't, don't punish yourself with some sort of solitary confinement. You know, if I just do a month in the hole, I think I'll be okay with the Lord. No. Go to your priest. Jesus is so great that we have this ability, we have this right, and when we go, we are given grace. So confidently come to your sympathetic priest knowing that he was appointed by God for you. 
He was appointed by God for you. Hebrews goes in, he's, he, he's introducing this theme of high priest. And so he's like, all right, I know a lot of my audience is going to know exactly what a high priest is. But in a couple thousand years, some church in Des Moines is going to be reading this. They're not going to have the greatest context, so I'm going to help them out. Thank you, author of Hebrews. He's so considerate. So he goes into the office of high priest, showing their human limitations, and by default, showing how Christ fulfills this to a greater level. But he goes, here's the high priest. Not, not necessarily the, the uh, proper execution of, of what a high priest is, but, but God's intention of a high priest. Every high priest is chosen among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The role of high priest is a God-designed role in order to provide for us a need that we have. That we can't go to the Lord on our own without some sort of mediator there. And it points us to the one who is our ultimate high priest. And even back in the Old Testament, it would point them to, we need a better high priest than this. Our high priest is screwed up. When he goes into the tent on the Day of Atonement, he's got to offer for himself and us. We have this high priest who goes to God on our behalf so that we can have a relationship with God. He offers the sacrifices we're not able to. See, in the Old Testament, the, the Levites, only the Levites could be the priests. Only the Levites could offer the sacrifices. And this isn't God being just picky. This isn't God making it unnecessarily hard. This is God teaching us about Jesus. That we can't just go to God on our own and do this on our own. We have to come to God on God's terms That we have a need that we ourselves can't take care of by ourselves. And our sin is a problem that we ourselves cannot take care of by ourselves. We need help. We need, we need a sacrifice that someone else offers on our behalf to God. Jesus took a sacrifice, not needing to offer one for himself. He offered himself. And so here we have this picture of a priest who, who intercedes on our behalf and who is gentle, dealing with the ignorant. The Bible is just full of flattery for us, isn't it? The ignorant and wayward. And again, this points us that Christ is able to identify with our weakness knowing the weight of temptation, knowing the weight of sin on the flesh, and without actually having sin. And I'm convinced that no fully human priest, if they were sinless, would, would be able to do this the way Christ does. I'm convinced that, that if, a, if, let's say, if a, if a human priest was able to, to like really achieve personal holiness on their own, that that, that holiness would would fall short pretty quick as they would just become a jerk. Spiritually abusive, puffed up with pride. But Jesus, in his humility, takes on our weakness in order 
to better and more fully serve us. And then there's this part of this that this is, there, this is God's choice who is the sacrifice or who is the, the high priest. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. Like no one's able to, to prop themselves up. God saves us by God's methods and we need someone to do this for us. You know, there's several times in the Old Testament when someone's like, you know what, this whole like Levite, red tape, it's kind of a pain. So I'm just going to cut through the red tape. I'm going to thrive on efficiency and we're going to do sacrifices to God our way. That always ends poorly really quickly. Like if you're doing a read through the Bible for the first time, there's a little bit of a spoiler alert here. Every time someone does that, it goes bad fast. God, in, even in the law, in the first covenant, set up a provision to make sure that we could come back to him, knowing we would sin. And when you sin, do these sacrifices. And when you sin, do these sacrifices. The priest will do these sacrifices. That God provided for us in that, pointing us to the one who would become our great high priest, who is Jesus, so that we could know, like, there's... There's someone in my life who I love dearly, who is not a believer. But one time we were talking about that, and they just said, look, um, I don't think I need Jesus. I can just go straight to God. We don't, I, I love God. I have no need for Jesus. And, and, and the truth of the matter is, she just doesn't know the Lord. Because we can't, we can't bypass God's plan to a relationship with God. We cannot get to God on our own. We need a way. Jesus is that way, the truth and the life. We need someone else of God's own choosing to go on our behalf. And so... So we have God's appointment here. He, he, he quotes two different psalms. You are my son. You are a priest forever. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. I'm just going to leave that out as a suspense. Because how often do you get to use uh, Melchizedek as a cliffhanger, right? Like, we got to live that up. So in, in a couple weeks, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. that, that Mel, i got to stop. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give away the goods. Um, God, in the same way that he begotten his son, he had begotten for us a priest to act on our behalf, to deal with us gently, And to offer sacrifice for our sin. And he is God's plan. We can confidently go to our sympathetic priest knowing that he was appointed by God for you and that he is the source of eternal life. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I think verse 7 
is a unique glimpse into the prayer life of Christ as a whole, but it is also a glimpse particularly into the prayers of Christ at Gethsemane. I think Christ, and here's what I mean by that, Christ in his time on earth, I fully believe, prayed with all of the emotion available to him and cried out to God knowing the need, knowing his love for people, knowing the lostness of people, knowing the need for, for sacrifice, knowing beyond what we know the depth of the darkness of sin and lack of faith. And he, he cried out and he cried out. We get a unique glimpse in Gethsemane when Jesus cries out. And he was heard. And then we have verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. First of all, there's this, there's this tangent. I'm just going to say real quick and then we'll get back to the text. If you pray and nothing happens, it does not mean that God did not hear your prayers. Dispel that lie right away. That Jesus was heard and Jesus suffered on the cross. What does it mean that he learned obedience through what he suffered? Well, there's, there's a couple things going on here. The, the author is, is setting up that we don't get this in English. He's setting up this, he learned and he suffered. And it's actually a, a rhyme in the Greek. Emothen, epothen. One commentator said this, his learning obedience did not involve the painful correction that sinful children need. Instead, it involved his experiential encounter throughout his life and climaxing in his death with the overwhelming personal cost of commitment of the commitment he embraced as he entered our world at his incarnation. And then, as, as the commentator said, realized its full climax in the cross, that Jesus learned the cost of obedience. Because like if you tell your kid, go eat ice cream and they're obedient, that's great. But if your instruction is for the benefit of the child, for the benefit of your will as a parent, for them to do something that's much more difficult and they're obedient, they, even though they're obedient and they never needed correction, they still learn about that obedience. They learn what it means to be obedient. And ultimately, Jesus came to do the will of God. Jesus' perfect obedience, realized through suffering, did not result in Him telling us to try harder, but again, results in Him lovingly and in submission to the will of God, offering Himself on our behalf so we can have eternal life. And let me tell you, a God who lovingly and willfully suffers to make right your wrongs is a God you can trust. Sometimes this priestly language of Jesus gets confusing for us because sometimes we have really bad spiritual leaders who have this level of authority because of the office they hold in, in a church and they wield that authority wrongly. And they, they belittle people. And they lord their authority over others. 
not eager to serve as an under-shepherd of Christ, but as someone who needs to puff up their own ego, who uses and abuses the people under them. And if you've experienced that, I'm deeply sorry. And I want you to know that Jesus as your priest could not be more different than whoever that individual was. He lovingly offers himself. Chapter 2 tells us that he tasted death for us, that he defeated death and the devil when he offered himself, that Jesus used all of who he is to save us. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There is none beside him who can save and none who in addition to him can save. It is only your priest, Jesus. And he is a Lord. His name is not an incantation or a hall pass from sin. Or we can say, Jesus, 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 while looking in the mirror three times, turn on the light and your sin is forgiven. He is Lord. And when we make him our Lord, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our obedience shows his lordship in our lives. And so I want to ask you, with a Savior like this, a while ago we started out by saying, man, how are, how are you doing today? Do you relate to this idea of like, I just need to hide, my sin is too terrible. With a Savior like this, a Savior who offers himself, a Savior who sympathizes with our weakness, who helps us in our temptation, a Savior who lays himself down for the will of God and for our eternal life. What is there to hide from? Why would you want to hide? Why would you want to stay in the broken cycle of your sin when you can confidently come to the throne of grace knowing that when you get there, as humbling as it may be, you will receive grace and mercy from God. This is, a, this is kind of a backwards passage for a preacher because he actually starts with the application, which is, a, you know, because he didn't go to seminary. So one day I'll find this guy in heaven. I'll be like, hey, by the way, that was a great passage, but you did it wrong. Um, but he starts with the application. Hold fast to your confession. Draw near to the throne of grace. As we approach the Lord's table, as we approach this time of remembering what Christ has done for us, Will you cling on to this confession that Jesus is Lord, that He, being fully God, Creator, that Jesus took on flesh and suffered and died? Would you hold on to that confession that He is the sole provider of salvation? And would you draw near to the throne of grace? Receive forgiveness for your sins. And receive 
the lavish grace of mercy, grace and mercy of God that He so freely gives us. He provided us with eternal life. Let's pray. As those who come to service come forward, Father, we do thank You for this. We thank You for this great truth that our Lord, Jesus, You being the Son of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking on the human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, taking on the form of a servant, and you humbled yourself to death, even death on a cross. So that our sins can be forgiven. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to remind you that this is the Lord's table. If you're new or visiting and you belong to the family of God through faith in Christ, we invite you to partake with us. We ask that you would, if you have any sin that's not dealt with, that you would either deal with that sin through repenting in your heart uh, before you take the elements or let them pass you by this time. Now, let's, uh, the praise team is going to lead us as we pass out the elements and then we'll take them together.